Hey, Whiskey Ringers. So we've got our first returning guest, the one and only, the alchemist, Alan Bishop, is rejoining the podcast. Welcome back. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be here. Somehow uh, still alive after my week and a half long sojourn through a lot of cough syrup. I mean, it's got some alcohol in it, so you got to, you know, keep the baseline going. It's all good. Right. But no, glad you're feeling better, better brother. So um, as I was saying before we started recording, you are the first returning guest for the Whiskey Ring podcast. Which is awesome. That's awesome, it, right? It's awesome. It's like Dude, coming this, home. It's like coming yeah. home. This is episode 40 something. And, you know, first time getting a guest back, it's just awesome. And uh, we're going to hit a couple of really cool topics. But like I said, we're going to keep it easy. We're going to shoot the shit. We're going to talk about some of this incredible whiskey witch that you sent. <laughs> and uh, since I am a little bit warmed up, go dive right into that 126.7 proof right there. that'll wake you up that'll wake oh, you yeah. up all right so just in case anyone is listening for the first time why don't you do a quick intro for yourself yeah i'm uh alan bishop i am the um head alchemist at spirits of french lake which is um really just code word for uh master distiller which is another term that means nothing uh you know if you're going to be pretentious you got to go 100 percent into it so you know head alchemist sounds way more pretentious than master distiller i think so that's the uh the title i choose to go with i don't always sound as though uh, uh i'm imitating diane reams uh although <laughs> this evening because i lost my voice last week doing a historic uh distilling presentation i'm a, a little I uh, still got a little frogginess in my throat there. So uh, I've been there at Spirits of French Lake since it started in 2016. Um, prior to that was a Copper and Kings. Grew up in a family of home distillers. And there's a whole bunch of weird background noise about all that stuff that's been talked about about a million and one times. Um, truthfully, I am a fat kid Hoosier that gets to do the one thing that he's really good at every day for a living. Uh, and that's really, really the extent of my story. It works for me. And I mean, look, if you're listening, you want a more formal kind of thing. As Alan said, he's uh, been on many a podcast, got his own now, uh, which I think launched. It was like just before um, the Whiskey Ring Distillers yeah. Talk. Distillers Talk. Yeah, I think we're shit. I don't know. We're like episode 90 something at this point. I don't know. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, you you went weekly right out of the gate, I think. Right. Yeah, we did. We did. And then yeah. during the COVID thing, we it was like we were trying to get way ahead we do like four or five a week you know so if that's what i uh if we you know obviously we moved this back because you lost your voice um if we didn't do that i would have done six in seven days last week and after four i I was done yeah that's right yeah but yeah man i was doing that with distilling plus reenacting and all that stuff and uh you know, I always tell people, like, if I'm not distilling, I'm probably thinking about it or talking about it or reenacting it. And for me, like, you put three or four podcasts in a week. It's as bad as going to two or three, you know, actual shows in a week and then signing bottles and talking to people. It's every bit as bad, you know, because you can only you only maintain that for a very short amount of time. There's there's no way that anybody can just live and breathe that all the time. No, absolutely not. Uh, but 
in the you know less formal sense of I've been following you also on Instagram and you know you got a big social media presence, especially within the bourbon and distilling community, but I think you reach a little beyond that. And uh, you know, the when I first had you on the the alchemist, I didn't quite I think I didn't quite get it or I didn't quite appreciate it as much. That's cool. But um I think that's really, I didn't appreciate it as much, but in, you know, in the past year, since uh, you were on the first time seeing you hammering out your own copper stills, uh, different throwing together, different mash bills and, and uh, collecting yeast that people haven't used in God knows how long, if they've ever used them. And uh, it really, it, it's closer than, I think it is closer than master distiller to what you really do. You know, I, yeah, I think so. And then I, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, we talked about this last time I was on your show, but the history of the Black Forest of Southern Indiana and the distilling complexes that were here. And for years now, I've been the only person doing all that stuff. Right. And like now, all of a sudden, there's some attention on that because we've had some success. And so I've always just done things that interest me. And there's always like nine or 10 projects in the can. And of nine or 10, maybe one or two actually see the light of day because they all rely on other people. And so you know, really when it comes down to it, if you got 10 friends you think you can rely on, you got three friends that you can actually rely on to get those projects done. So there's always, there's always a bunch of stuff in the can. It seems like in the past, I told my wife the other day, it seems like in the past five or six months, like something has turned a corner to the extent now where there are other distilleries opening up in the Black Forest. There are other people getting excited about the history of distilling in Southern Indiana um, you know, we're putting in a, a historic distillery back at Daisy Spring Mill, Spring Mill, um, Indiana Spring Mill State Park. Um, I started getting invited to do these talks about Indiana distilling history. And it feels like that maybe in four or five years, I might not any longer be the only person talking about it, which is which is nice. You know, it's yeah. like there's a little a little a little Paquito, you know, accomplishment in there to some some degree where things are actually going the direction I hoped that they would. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a couple of them. I, I saw you were doing a couple of talks last week and the week before about this, but you're right. I mean, besides the fact that you've been the only one talking about this for a while, it's great to see more attention being paid to it. Uh, it, you know, that had, who do I have on? Um, Eric Wolf from uh, Stolen Wolf. I know it's yeah. not Black Forest, but um, the same kind of idea where it's- Same this, concept, yeah. You know, a tiny little area whether you take the area, the geographic area, or if you take the Rose and Rye discussion, right. still very limited, but slowly but surely building out a cadre of people who can talk about it so that you have 4% more free time than you have now. Right. <laughs> you can get 100%. one more of those projects uh, in the pipeline. Yeah. And then the fight there, you know, with, with Southern Indiana is like, you know, obviously MGP is where it's at, you know, it's a diff slightly different region of Southern Indiana. And then, then you have Kentucky, which is less than an hour away. And then you have Northern Indiana and Indianapolis. And then you have St. Louis over here. And so it's like this one little weird, weird little place where one strange little hillbilly named Alan found this history and couldn't shut his mouth about it. Right. And so I, you know, again, I'm, I'm just going to be happy when there are other people talking about it. It doesn't have to just be me narrating it like all the time, constantly. And so, you know, I think that there's, it's headed that direction and that's exciting to me. So it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you want to throw out uh, the names of the couple of distilleries that are, that are going to be opening up or have opened up in the, in the area. Yeah. So yes. Um, 
Spirits of French Lick, obviously, uh, where I work at. And then we have um, uh, Potoka Lake Winery just recently announced that they're starting a distillery, uh, I believe, called Old Homestead. Um, my former compatriot, Julie Kasperzak, is over there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another distillery in Harrison County uh, called Best, which is Wilbert Best. And mostly he does a lot of contract distilling, but I think he's, he's, he's moving towards doing his own stuff. Um, Springville State Park in Lawrence County, they're gonna, that's going to be an actual production, historic production distillery. They're not going to make a lot. They're going to make about eight or nine gallons a day, but it will be run year-round as a way to raise money for Springville State Park, which I think is super awesome. It's, it's the, the very first state-owned distillery in the United States, which is kind of a cool, unique situation. Um, and... There's a lot of exciting things coming up with that, depending on who we get in the doors as a distiller. And I've got somebody lined up for that, I hope. Um, but a very neat situation that will allow, basically it'll be a starting or an ending point for whatever, you know, distillery trail runs through Southern Indiana over time. Um, you know, you won't have the whole story of distilling in Southern Indiana if you don't go to that distillery because it's going to be a museum. Plus they'll be doing, you know, mash in demonstrations, very similar to like Mount Vernon. Um, not as many stills as Mount Vernon, obviously. Uh, and you'll be able to buy very unique, uh, historically appropriate whiskey and brandy from that distillery. Um, the rumor is there is a, and this is unverified stuff from here on out, but there is a, uh, a, a couple, a couple of doctors, older doctors whose family are from Washington County, my, my county, uh, who are looking at investing in a distillery in the next couple of years here. Um, and finally, there's something in Washington County to draw people, which is the historic Salem Speedway is back up and going. Uh, a good friend of mine, Bill Nicely, actually runs that and owns and operates it. He's done a lot to bring attention to the history of racing in Washington County. And if we can get those people to come in and spend those racing dollars, it makes sense to have a distillery in Washington County. So that's, that's super exciting for me, uh, without a doubt. So. Um, slowly but surely we're getting there. And then of course the expanded, you know, Southern Indiana thing with hard truth, uh, doing what those guys do. Um, you got dusty barn over in Evansville. Uh, they're doing some cool stuff. Um, obviously Huber's is, is getting a lot of attention right now. Um, so the black forest in the surrounding region is really starting to expand a little bit. And I also suspect that, uh, one of the really cool things I'm very excited about, obviously, is the, the expansion of uh, Sazerac into southern Indiana. Uh, they bought the, the old Pillsbury plant. Uh, you know, they use that for bottling now down in New Albany. And then they also bought a huge tract of land and are dumping billions of dollars into uh, some of the land around the old Charlestown powder factory. Um, and I don't know what their plans are, but for the amount of money that they're spending and the amount of workers they're hiring, I see no way in which they are not distilling in some capacity in southern indiana in the very near future uh, expanding that waterfront too which was going on before covid um, the state of indiana had actually started to buy uh, lands all down the waterfront on the indiana side to try to connect it over to the kentucky side to where you would have a loop that went uh, new albany to louisville louisville to jeffersonville and then a railroad walking path that went from new albany and jeff all the way up and into uh, mitchell or lawrenceburg indiana which is where spring mill is so um, really kind of bringing those dollars in and expanding tourism. And I think from that, more and more distilleries are going to see an opportunity to get up and going. So, so I'm just curious. I mean, as a, I remember seeing the, the news that Sazerac was buying that, you know, that huge tract over there and putting all that money in. I mean, you know, I guess walk, walk me through this is maybe a, from the distillery, from the distiller side versus the, 
really whatever side you want, I guess the distiller, the historian, the um, businessman side as well. Like, is this a move to, you think, like challenge MGP in some way? Because it, it feels just so targeted in terms of where they put it. You know what I mean? I suspect the tax incentives were correct, right? That's that's part that's, of it. I mean, that's, yeah, that's usually the first thing. Part of it. Um, I also suspect that you know they need a home for, say, something like Southern Comfort, right? Because they got to have the capacity to be able to do that. And you know, obviously, there's at least some some waning and 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 uh, waxing interest in trying to rebuild that as some sort of a brand. Um, and, but as far as like bourbon and rye, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know what the plan there is. I, I would suspect that that's going to be the case. Um, you know, surely, surely they're not dropping in a distillery, just make, you know, GNS or whatever for, you know, whatever vodkas that they have, or, you know, whatever base spirits, I mean, potentially, I guess, but, uh, it would seem to me that if you're dropping it in that location and Indiana wants to see that location become more of a tourism attraction, that it would be something that would draw people in um, into that location. There's a lot of good, great hiking around that location in particular. Um, and obviously it's tied to the waterfront as well over time. So you would tend to think that there would be, I would think that they would want that to be a home to something. Now what that something is, I don't know for sure, but um, it would make sense to me. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of great history in that area and, and those guys I'm sure Maybe they do, maybe they don't know this, but, you know, Jonathan Jennings, uh, he actually had a distillery not too far down the road from where that is in the very early 1800s in a place called Springville, uh, which no longer exists, but that was actually the, um, the county capital for a while. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's hope they've got the history part of it in there. I mean, it'd be nice. I, Right. It'd be nice. And with, it seems like each new facility that's being built nowadays uh, has some kind of visitor component, like you were saying, a, a tourism component, visitor center, something like that. And uh, if that's the case, I really hope they integrate that history. Because if not, then, you know, it's a, it's a wasted opportunity for sure. Absolutely. Um, and in that area of Indiana, that, that river, the river towns in Indiana have such a unique history anyways. I mean, pretty much almost as old as anything on the Kentucky side, right? I mean, maybe it didn't develop as fast as the Kentucky side, but the history is there. And there's there's very unique opportunities and aspects there. And um, especially, again, if you have a walking trail through there, I mean, you got distilleries on the Louisville side, why wouldn't you? You know, why yeah. wouldn't you want that on the Indiana side? So, Absolutely. And we talked about this last too. time fantastic for charlestown as well because it's you know charlestown was uh, uh and not you know not to offend anybody but charlestown a lot of it was legitimately you know government projects to some extent to uh, like my grandfather worked there at the uh, at the powder plant and that's what a lot of that was built for it was built for the powder plant it was housing for the powder plant you know families and when that powder plant went out of business you know those families had nowhere to go and that's where they ended up at and so there wasn't a lot of lot of money or a lot of infrastructure or a lot of investment and i think it was just far enough away from everything else that's developed in the past 10 years that nobody was paying that much attention to it so i, I certainly hope that it gets gets the proper attention that it deserves absolutely and so we talked about this a little bit last time too and um in that the seeing made in indiana or distilled in indiana on a label for for many years now has almost automatically meant MGP. 
right. um, if it, you know, if it's not a specific brand, like, like you guys, like um, Huber's. Uh, so I also wonder if they're betting on the fact that people are okay with 95% of the bourbon in the, in the country, not being made in like, you know, not 95% being made there anymore and saying that right. you can make it on the other side of the river. And yeah. River same, magic. <laughs> right. It's the same, right. same magic, same limestone shelf you're working with basically the same water source. Um, maybe it's slightly different aquifer. I mean, you would know the geography of that better than I do, but you know, the same general yeah, area enough pretty, where pretty they, close. Yeah. Pretty damn close. Yeah. Right. And especially if you're one of the, one of the huge guys, like, like a Sazerac, who's got, you know, some, uh, let's, let's call them volume brands that the profile is pretty, you can blend out a profile because you're just using such high volume Yeah. that, you know, maybe they, maybe they've decided that that's okay now. It could be, and it could be too, you know, um, and I'm not huge on this and I've criticized this many times and I have several friends in the, in the state legislature, but you know, they push that Indiana rye thing through, which it has its flaws. Don't get me wrong, especially because rye is not a traditional Indiana product. It wasn't for any amount of time anyway, short of, you know, Seagram's coming in and, and MVP obviously, but maybe, I mean, if they were smart, them and MGP, Luxco, et cetera, would all get together and go, well, maybe Indiana is a rye state now. Maybe that's what Indiana's thing is. And, you know, whether or not that's historically accurate is different than whether or not is that a marketable aspect of, of something that's worthwhile to put your time and effort into. And if you have MGP making 95.5 like crazy, and then you've got, you know, Sazerac down here, and maybe maybe they're doing Sazerac there in Indiana, maybe that becomes a thing where, you know, it, Indiana becomes the rye state. And, if that's the case, uh, you know, tax dollars being what they are, I can't complain about that either. Other than from the historical aspect, I'm just curmudgeonly and, you know, I've got to find something to complain about anyways. So. I mean, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair complaint because you don't want to be pigeonholed as an entire state into a certain thing. Like in, Especially a certain thing that didn't exist historically. Right, you, know? right. It's, yeah. uh, you know, rye, rye was, um, they grew it here early on and there were rye distillers early on. In fact, the first distiller that we know of in Indiana was a rye distiller, but they figured out pretty quickly that the, uh, the spring storms in Indiana and rye production, when you've got rye that's six foot tall, it just didn't work. It made no sense. Right. Right. It probably so, just flattened everything. Things started molding over, I'm sure. Yep. Yep. If they really yeah. wanted a, a great Indiana spirit and it'd be hard to do. And I've proposed this before, but obviously apple brandy would be the historic spirit that you would go with problem is we don't have the orchards to support it anymore so and nor is apple brandy at this point knocking on the door of bourbon so <laughs> you know this is, i'm, I'm this a dreamer is, though you know I'm a little bit of a dreamer hey you know I, i've been trying more and more apple brandies especially the last like three four months or so it's uh you're right like it's not knocking on the door of bourbon i don't think it's even knocking on the door right at this point but uh i i think it's it's gaining some credibility as you know it's not it's not fermented apple juice it's not well it is but it's not you know it's not just fermented apple juice or not distilled apple juice like it has its own profile it does well and you you know what yeah. here's so you say not fermented not distilled apple juice but here's a here's the sexiest quote i ever heard about apple branding I, I just found this recently this was from a letter written by the nephew of henry robertson who owned the old clifty distillery he went to visit it when he got married right that was part of their honeymoon and he talked about how Uncle Henry took him and he showed him the still house and everything. And he said that Uncle Henry calls Old Cliff the Apple Brandy 
the fermented and distilled juice of the forbidden fruit. Right? What a great yeah. marketing scheme that is. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, a little bit wordy for me, but uh, but the idea behind it is right. It's right. You know, like right. if they're charging by the letter on the label, you're going to have a problem. But otherwise, that sounds. Well, you know, you know, you know the trick to that, right? You got to, you got to have, um, you got to have somebody with some money behind it, and then you got to have a cool coloring scheme like black and orange, <laughs> you know, and really yeah. kind of push, and then it, it'll be okay. You put it on some cases, it'll work. But you got to have it'll that work. marketing money behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, before we get to the whiskey, which they definitely want to uh, get to open that quickly. Um, in terms of the Indiana rye, I was just thinking about the kind of the parallels, one in, in Pennsylvania with uh, with Lancaster County, but also uh, the Empire rye in New York. Um, place, another place I'm seeing so much apple brandy out of. Um, yep. I, I, had, I had stolen Wolf's apple brandy too. It was uh, unaged. It was really, really good stuff. It is. It's very um, good. And Eric is a fantastic distiller just in general. He's, I would, Eric is honestly out of the craft distillers that I'm friends with. If I had a top 10, Eric is in that list 100%. So, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. He's, uh, he, I, in talking to him, he, he throws a lot of uh, honor, all due, of course, on Dick Stoll yep. and what he brought to the table, what he brought to the distillery no problem with that but uh i was trying to push him a little bit to be like you know you're doing some great shit too rag um, on yourself some yeah it, it's okay yeah. it'd be all right it'd be all right yeah, like yeah we, absolutely. We, we unfortunately we lost dick almost two years ago and that it is unfortunate because it's just one of the giants he's got so much he forgot he's one of those guys that forgot more than any of us will ever know uh but yeah eric you know you the one-year-old rye that i'm tasting is stuff that he, you distilled good the, you know it's great yeah yeah and um, I, lo I love seeing pennsylvania come back and i love seeing new york come back and again like you said apple brandy is growing it's becoming a thing and people are becoming more familiar with it and that's fantastic and i, I love seeing those regional styles redevelop right you know the, the monongahela rye with with the specific rise that you know they're mm -hmm. playing with and then the empire rye and one of the cool things happening in new york that i'm surprised now that you new york distillers are talking about is there are guys in New York right now growing uh, a corn, a red flint corn that they have selected specifically for Empire Rye to be the corn component, right? And they they need they just need to do a better job of marketing that, right? It's because that's a very yeah. unique East Coast flint corn traditional. This is what was probably very similar to what was used, you know, for traditional you know ryes that had some corn in them in New York. And I mm -hmm. love watching that develop. And and you know I mentioned the top ten guys. Another guy I put in there too. Uh, just very similar to Eric, uh, Lenny Eckstein from Deer Hammer out in Colorado. Lenny's the same way that Eric is. He will not brag on himself at all, right? Like you can't, you can't bring Lenny on a show and have Lenny talk about Lenny. Lenny has to say, well, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for, you know, this, 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 and this. No, Lenny, you're doing really cool shit. You got to yeah. brag at least a little bit, you know? Yeah. You're allowed to brag when you're, when you can back it up. Right. Absolutely. That's, absolutely. So, I mean, might be a little saccharine, but I think that's a good way to introduce uh, the uh, whiskey that put us, you know, back in back in regular touch. And this was the Whiskey Witch. Yeah. The Spirits of French Lick. So this is, I mean, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, I, I tried it a couple times now uh, before bringing you on, and it's given me a different flavor each time, and I've loved it each time. So it's a whiskey distilled from a wheat mash. Got wheat 
Indiana peat smoked malt and oats, uh, double pot stilled, sorry, double pot distilled. And let's see, 127, 126.7. Wow, my eyes are really not good today. 126.7 proof, aged four and a half years. So there is so much to unpack on this label, right? So, I mean, and the first one I got to ask about, honestly, is the the Indiana Pete. Yeah, 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 right. Like, uh, before I comment on that, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Is this not amongst the weirdest whiskeys that you've ever tasted? Yes, with the caveat that it's among it's amongst the weirdest I've ever tasted that I liked. <laughs> How about that? Right. There you go. Perfect. Great. Uh, yeah. But so the Indiana. No, go ahead. I, Sorry. I, I was going to say, I, I got blinded on weeded on Wicked Pickle Whiskey, and I, I just I can't get past that. So right. I had to add that, right. that I liked part of that. So. We're, we're going we're going for historic and good as opposed to odd and meh right? Right. you know not to knock anybody but um yeah so that indiana peak component is is really unique that's um so we have a we have a great maltster here in indiana up in lebanon indiana uh, caleb mccalkey at sugar creek malt company and um caleb has filled a number of phone calls for me over the years for just weird shit um <laughs> and so we had him make some classic old school uh what's called yield pale l malt but we had him go to northern indiana and find peat from indiana i didn't know that peat in indiana was a thing i didn't know it existed but it does there are peat fields i don't know what you call them peat bogs in northern indiana up around chicago um and so he brought that back and smoked that malt for us and it's it's not like the traditional uh islay style peat it's not heavy creosote it's more when you're distilling it, you don't really taste it in the white dog at all. It's it's very like fruity and very round and very floral. Um, mm. And the interesting thing is that the, the smoke itself, the actual kind of smoky characteristic, didn't really show up until we'd put it in a barrel for about six months. And then going back and tasting through those barrels, that started to sort of express itself in a different way than it did in the new make. Um, and I'm not sure if that's just how volatile it is. Or if it needed some amount of esterification or what the actual process was. It was it's one of those things that like I wish I knew so I could for sure always replicate it every time, but I don't know for sure exactly what it is. Um, but it, it made for a unique and interesting characteristic in that whiskey. Um, and one which I thought was very important to bring as far as an Indiana, you know, sort of terroir into what is otherwise um almost beyond traditional whiskey because this 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 style of whiskey uh, by far predates what you'd see out of irish whiskey and scottish whiskey uh it goes back to almost what they would have called aqua vitae and that was the inspiration behind the whole thing i mean the it's interesting you said the, the peak component or the smoke component rather didn't really assert itself till like six months in the barrel because um like i said it, it's kind of unavoidable to compare when you're talking about peat to to Isla and Scotland and you know even considering the different peat styles from there it's it's just unavoidable because that's what most consumers are familiar with if they're even interested in peat to begin with yeah um, and when you're you talk to the Scottish distilleries like uh, let's take uh, Brickladic for example because they got that Octomore series I gotta say though Brickladic might be my favorite unpeated isla malt it's just you know they don't peat everything but everything has yep. a tiny bit of smoke to it 
Uh, but that being said, like, you know, the Octomores get up to the hundreds of PPMs with this stuff. And, but the weird thing is, is that the peatiness, to use the, the really broad term on that, the peatiness uh, tends to dissipate the longer it's in the barrel. Like if you get a 20 year old Freud, um, it's not going to be the same as the 16 year old or the, I think the 12 year old for Lafroig and 16 for Lagavul and 10 for Ardbeg, whatever their you know, core brands are, the longer right. it ages, the less peat and less smoke you get and it really mellows out. So, so like, so on the, uh, on the new make, did, did any aspect of the peat kind of show itself or was it really just subtle and nuanced? It's very subtle nuance, but what, what kind of showed itself was sort of a very slight smoky character, but to, to even identify it as smoky as far as an analytical term would really be a stretch. It really came off, and it sounds very odd because I don't know that this shows in, in the finished product. It came off almost as like, um, you're familiar with star fruit, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So very much like when you cut into a star fruit, that kind of it's fruity, but it's also a little like on the phenolic side. And when I say phenolic, I'm thinking like, um, like I think like blackberry seed, like blackberry okay, seed, yeah. right? Okay. That, that kind of, um, it's interesting and it's intriguing and it's, it's kind of cool on the palate, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, I wouldn't want a whole lot of that, right? At mm -hmm. one time. Uh, so it was there. And it honestly, it took me a little while to figure out because there's so many weird things going on in this whiskey anyways, especially with the yeast in particular and, and the weird things that it brings out. It took me a little while to figure out that it was the peat that was causing that. And it literally, honestly, I didn't catch that it was a peat that was causing that off the new make when we were making it. I had to literally switch products and use the same yeast on a different whiskey to see what was peat and what was yeast mm -hmm. uh, causing what, where, because I knew what oats and I knew what wheat were going to do, but the yeast was a real outlier as well as the peat as far as what was actually affecting the flavor that we were getting. Uh, and as and I'm sure you picked up there some very crazy flavor profiles that come off of that whiskey witch that mm -hmm. to some extent do come off almost fruity or almost botanical in some ways um and a lot of those are yeast related very specifically and fermentation related at, at much higher temperatures than most american whiskey is traditionally fermented at again there's, there's so much to unpack there but uh, in just a couple of times that i've tasted it so far like I said, I got a different profile each time. The first one was uh, like a like an unsweetened cola syrup, anyway, very that. dark, very unctuous. Uh, second time was more of the herbal side. Like um, I thought of an absinthe rinsed cocktail. Yep. You know, yep. you just got that little bit of green absinthe and the wormwood in the back. Um, the oats for me were, were really had an outsized role. Like I love oat whiskeys or whiskey that contain oats in them. Um, always have for whatever reason, but they have that very unusual mouthfeel for me. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, before we go to the, the uh, like we could easily talk for, for an hour on just this product. So we, I mean, we might, and that's, if that's cool with you, it's cool with me. Yeah. Whatever you want to um, do, brother. Um, I want to just jump back to the Pete for a second to be to ask, you know, um, like we're told by people in Scotland that there are peat bogs everywhere that basically if it's, if it's cold and damp enough, 
not too cold that it freezes, but not too warm that it ferments, then you can have a peat bog. Right. Just basically but, anaerobic bacteria and break down slowly. Yeah. Right. Just breaking down that plant matter and the couple of organisms that are in there as well and just compressing it down. And um, it sounds much sexier when it's a, you know, calling it peat versus decaying matter. Right. Um, and having the Scottish accent helps a little bit, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. It, much, it much sexier. Serious. Yes. Um, but so I know we've had uh, peat bogs here in New York um, and like in the New York City area, within 30 miles of the city kind of area. Uh, and I'm curious what the like what what makes up your peat profile in in Indiana? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I, I'm, I honestly, I don't know as much about that as I should. So I, I can speculate a little bit, but I can't tell you. 100 because i honestly don't know for sure and then that is this is part of my uh bucket list for this year is to actually get up there and see these peat bogs and see what's happening talk to somebody knows what's up but i would suspect obviously in scotland it's mostly heather right there's heather that grows everywhere that's what gets compressed becomes peat over time um i would suspect being northern indiana my guess would be primarily deciduous trees oak in particular might be a huge contributor to it but also there's there's a lot of coniferous trees when you get up in northern indiana and so i would honestly suspect that you know some combination that deciduous plus those conifer uh, uh needles falling off that would set the ph to such an extent that it would be very hard for bacteria to ever get a chance to really get growing right it's like dropping citric acid into something to preserve it or whatever um so that would be my suspicion as far as where that came from uh, and how it formed over time was, was, you know, deciduous and coniferous trees. I would have to think would be the, the main contributors to that peat overall. I can't imagine any other kind of plant life, Northern Indiana in particular, that would be an overwhelming contributor to, to such, such a thing. Uh, that And again, cause you don't think of it. Like I, you know, when Caleb said there are peat bogs in Indiana, I said, are you, making shit up just to sell me some stuff you know what i mean like i, I don't I, like i trust you but i you know i've never heard of this before so um sure. honestly i wish i knew better what that what that actually was composed of and i do intend to find out this year um i know that's that's backwards from what any other distiller would say but i i, I won't lie to you about what i do or do not know about that particular profile the whiskey ring podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. I know. I appreciate your honesty. Uh, when, you, when you find out more, you let me know. I'll talk all about it because uh, yeah i was thinking i was thinking about it and there's the 
does that plant life which mentioned the deciduous trees the coniferous trees and it can't be that old either in terms of no, you wouldn't think so and well, the other interesting thing is, and the reason I, th I think along those uh, coniferous and deciduous trees too, I don't know about Northern Indiana, but Southern Indiana, I know like when the settlers came into Southern Indiana, um, it was actually primarily coniferous. It wasn't, it was, it was maybe less than 10% deciduous trees, which is kind of a, mm -hmm. an odd thing for most people to think of. Um, and they were so thick that like a lot of the old roads, you'll still see references to this in history books. Like there was a road that ran to, um, Camelsburg, Indiana, up into what was called Bono, and eventually ended up um, oh, up around Bloomington. And it was so thick that they called the road the airlock, because they said when you went into it, you could not see the sun. It was like going into a cave. It was so thick. And mm -hmm. so if you think there were no, you know, before Europeans arrived, for example, there were no native, this is goofy, dorky stuff that I'm going into here that nobody will care about, but it's interesting. Uh, there were no native earthworms to North America at the time. So none of that stuff that fell would break down via the action of earthworms or anything like that. So it's just sitting there and it's just building up over time and over time and over time. And you would think that just the pressure alone, you know, from that, that the layer of leaves and needles, et cetera, you know, you're, you're keeping oxygen out. There's so much building up every year. It never gets a chance to really break down. And so it just pushes down and pushes down and pushes down. If you get in a boggy area, like I suspect there there are probably peat bogs here in southern Indiana that I don't know about because I never it never occurred to me like do we have is and now I'm curious is there maybe there is peat somewhere down here that might be interesting to use in a future uh, version of the whiskey witch so um, I don't know it's it's one of those rabbit holes that you can go deep into and this this entire whiskey that's what I've really enjoyed about this whiskey witch um, the whole thing the history of it the idea behind it. Um, what it's trying to replicate, what it's trying to do, what I'm trying to do with it, what I'm trying to express with it, and the fact that of all the things I've ever done, let's say on the legal side of things in my life, sure. this is by far my favorite project so far because it's come the closest to what I would like to present whiskey as being. It's not, it's not based on the Black Forest. It's not based on family stuff. It's based on the history of distilling but brought into a, a, a new sort of era, right? And so for me, this one pushes the boundaries of what can you do with a craft distillery? What can you do with a pot still? And so every part of it is kind of this, this rabbit hole that could literally go on and on and on forever. And, and I hope, I hope, because there will be future expressions of this in particular, every one of them is going to be a little bit different and a little bit off. And that's being done very much on purpose because those early sort of proto whiskeys were never consistent in any way, shape or form, right? They were, they were mm -hmm. generally expressions of not only where you are um, geographically, but who you are as a person at that time and what you had access to. And, and to me, that's, that's the fun of doing it. It's not, um, it's definitely not a whiskey that I think you could, you know, we, you and I could spend two hours talking about it. And I don't know that we would ever get it within like, I can't even put into words exactly what it is and and even though i made it exactly how i made it or why i made it that way it just it turned out really well for what it is and it's uh, i mean it's aged four and a half years too so you've had some time to to think about it to try it over the years and you know see how it evolves so yeah so you said you know the smoke started coming out six months in the barrel um at that point had you kind of decided that this was gonna this was something that was going to age that long 
No. So that's one of the really cool things about this too, is um, that four and a half year age statement, basically um, the first four years of that, this is, this is, I think this is cool, but the first four years of that um, was actually spent in copper and Kings barrels that I literally bought when I left Copper and Kings and they were barrels that I started at Copper and Kings with. So there's also a little, a little throwback between the two distilleries there. Um, now those barrels, when I got them, they'd already been used for, I believe they were Woodford barrels originally. And then they'd been through two cycles of Copper and Kings. So they were, they were fairly neutral barrels short of the brandy that had been in them and the brandy influences started coming through in them. And so, um, you know, going in at, still proof is what they went in at so probably like 135 136 proof somewhere in there um even after three years just going through and tasting those barrels i was like it was interesting but the barrel wasn't having enough of, a, of an effect there was the brandy influence was there but the barrel itself wasn't pushing itself as assertively as what it needed to um and it did need to have the brandy influence because of the history again of that particular style of whiskey where they where they were making aqua vitae um and to some extent trying to in the British Isles, they were trying to replicate brandy because they couldn't afford to import brandy and it was incredibly popular at that time. Uh, so what they would do is they would actually put raisins underneath the line arm or underneath the worm of the still and allow the liquid to drip over them, right? So instead of doing that, we used the barrel to try to get that sort of brandy profile. Um, so at three and a half years, honestly, between you and I, and I've said this about a couple of products of ours, and I think it's a distiller thing in general. At three and a half years, I tasted them. I'm like, well, I, this is trash. Like, I don't, like it's not bad but it's not doing what it needs to do it's not it's not heading in a way that seems like it's coming to any sort of fruition where it's going to finish in the state that it's currently in right now it was interesting because you got the smoke coming through and the smoke was doing things and you had the yeast that was adding sort of this botanical sort of characteristic to things but it wasn't cohesive in a way that i thought was really worthwhile um so what we did is we waited until it got to four years and I got into that spring, which was last year. Um, and then we took those brandy barrels all down and we dumped them and we blended it together. And, and overall, it was a great blend for what it was. It just didn't have enough barrel influence. So I thought, well, this is an American thing. It's an Americanized version of a very historic British Isles thing. Let's throw it into some combination of new oak and used oak. And initially, the idea was you would do, say, 20% new oak and then the rest of it would be used least in clear barrels right and now you've got a blend it's a bulk product and the more i thought about it, i thought no again this is this is a very odd unique sort of thing that nobody else is doing this more dorkiness maybe growing up in the 90s so let's uh let's make it almost like a hidden character in a mortal combat you know yep. <laughs> sort of video Good game where, where it has to be it can only go out it's only ever going to be a single barrel right so never are you going to see a new oak and a used oak blended together. So now we have two profiles. So we take part of it, we put it in used oak, lease and clear, part of it in new oak, and they're night and day. So you have the new oak in front of you. And then the, the used oak is very much more like lemongrass, like straight up lemongrass, very upfront, very bright, very vibrant. Um, but they are entirely night and day from one another. Um, and it was it was interesting, even, even going into the used oak and the new oak both, it was within two or three weeks you could really see major differences uh in the way that it tasted from that previously used brandy barrel over to you know either once filled or the brand new oak versions i was going to clarify that the um yeah so you had the 
second, third, fourth fill, it sounds like, for the original barrels. And then uh, with Lee Sinclair's, this would have been a, this would have been first, yeah, it would have been first fill yep. used. Yep. Brand new, newly emptied, still just a little wet on the inside is what we went after. So. Right. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask. Um, <laughs> so the, oh man, I don't even know where to go. There's, like I said, there's so many things I want to ask. So the, um, oh, so I've broken you. I declare no. I know. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been made speechless before the podcast, but, you know, usually I've got my set of questions, but I kind of went into this one being like, you know what, I want to, I want this to want to just be fluid and be really uh, organic because, um, you know, I, besides having talked to you once before, yeah, formally, you know, uh, I've heard you on plenty of other podcasts. It just works when it's organic, you know? Right. Um, so I wanted to ask about the, uh, the proof because the, because you've had proof go down from yep. the still proof, which was the first thing. And then um, the second one being with each of these being, um, single barrels like what is the proof range that you were getting with the final product yeah and so we we actually did so we, we took this off the still at still proof again like 135 or so and initially actually the proof went up because this was in the the the, the um, chai cellar so the brandy like cellar uh, mm. with higher humidity so the proof when we dumped them initially from the brandy barrels was probably 140 142 fairly high um, I dropped the proof when I blended them before going into the used oak and the new oak, uh, specifically because, so one of the things that happens when you go into a barrel at high proof is, is the alcohol is much more stable. So it can't, it doesn't oxidize or micro oxidize nearly as easily. Um, mm. This is one of the reasons we use 105 proof, for example, with, with the bourbons in particular, because I really want that micro oxidization and the exact opposite with the brandy where we go in at high proof because the less that micro oxidization I have, the more those fresh fruit flavors I get. Mm. So I felt like this needed to fall somewhere in between. So I needed to drop the proof to some extent. And I can't remember exactly what the entry proof was. It was either 120 or 130. And I have to go back and look. I don't know for sure. I, I suspect 130 is my guess. Um, but I dropped the overall blend to about 130, maybe 125, let's say somewhere in there. And it put that back into those used barrels and those new American oak barrels specifically because I wanted to get a little bit more oxidization with that for all intents and purposes. It's a finish, right? It's a finish with a new American oak barrel or a finish with a once used um, bourbon barrel. Uh, but I wanted to have, even if it was a very short amount of time, you know, however many months it was, I wanted to have that time to have that oxidization effect because that tends to give a, a sort of marrying effect to these sort of esters and these flavor bridges and these these odd compounds that develop from the weird yeast that we're using uh mm. which that's another thing we can get into momentarily is the kayak yeast back yeah. yeast um as well as from that peat and then obviously the pot's still funk of this whole thing too because one of the things that we very specifically did uh we did whiskeys and this is a whiskey from wheat mash um you can tend to treat those a little bit more like a single malt. So on a pot still, let's say you're doing a, a grain whiskey and it's a bourbon. You might cut the tails at between 88 and 92, 96 proof somewhere in there. And everybody is a little bit different. That's my, my general methodology. With wheat and with single malt in particular, I found that if you cut the tails at closer to 120, uh, you get a nice 
you get a more rounded product. Now, I did the exact opposite on this, and it's primarily wheat. I dropped this down to like the, the low 90s, trying to get some of that quote-unquote pot still funk mm-hmm. to fall into that dislip because I knew it was going to need to set for a while going into those used oak barrels. Um, and so that was going to give me a lot of these long-chain fatty acids. And again, knowing that I needed to, to, to oxidize those to some extent sort of helps substantiate. Let's change the proof and drop it down a little bit. Uh, for this last little phase of aging, was there uh, was there thoughts of putting a different proof in the new barrel versus the used barrel, just because the the used barrel would have had some of that interaction already with alcohol, or is there, is, is there not, enough still left in the barrel to not make that really an issue? Right. Um, yes, the second one. Uh, so I'm very. <laughs> very verbose. I'll use five words where one will do, right? But I'm also not that smart. So I didn't, I never, like, that was not a, a conversation in my head that I even had. Like, it didn't occur to me, but it's an interesting concept um, of how that might have changed things as well. But it was very much so, because it's very much ready, fire, aim, as I've said before about a lot of things that we do, like, here's the variables, but let's stick to this initial time. Let's just do it the exact same way in both barrels and see what the reaction is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously, like I said, the reaction is night and day. They're both very, very, very different products. Right. And, and I think mm-hmm. that makes it fun too, as far as like the limited availability of that product, like you might have to go out of your way. If you have a new oak version, like you do, for example, you might have to go out of your way and get somebody to mule something to you from another state for the used oak version. I think it almost makes it more fun, right, to be able to do those night and days and, and to be able to find those sort of hidden characters, as it were. Right. And looking at the um, at the bottle, is there an indication on the bottle where, whether it be, you know, the new oak versus the used oak cooperage? I don't think that there is because we didn't have to make a statement because it wasn't blended. Um, mm. But I don't have a bottle in front of me to be able to tell you for sure either. Um, and that honestly, there, there may be, uh, there may be an overlooked TTB rule there too. I don't, <laughs> I can't say for sure. Cause I don't label them. So. No, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's anything that you'd have to say about whether it was, um, new or used as long as it fit within the whiskey categorization, right. they probably yep. weren't looking at that. I'm yep. just curious in terms of, like I said, like if you, if you're someone who wants to try them side by side, um, you want to make sure that you get. Oh, I agree. I agree. And the, the easiest way to be able to tell would be able to look at the color. Like the, obviously the, the new oak is a much darker distillate. The, um, the used oak is more of like a, a straw color basically. Okay. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then there, if anybody had any questions too, I'll throw this out there. Um, if you ask me, if you send me a message and you say, I got it from whatever state, whatever store, I'll tell you new or used one way or the other. And I don't, it may be, it may be that the used oak had the designation. I can't remember exactly how that worked, but um, yeah, <laughs> so that's a good question. Hey, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, in terms of how you were probably thinking at the time, I mean, it makes total sense to do the same, to, to minimize the variables right. that you work with. So to put it, you know, the same proof in the, in the two different barrels, it, it makes total sense because then you'd be adding in a whole other set of, yeah. of variables in there. Uh, but yeah, look, looking back, of course, benefit of hindsight. I I would be really curious to know because like I said the, the new oak, you got brand new char on there, the uh the new compounds being that are available for that alcohol to to work with. But in the used one, 
especially if it's not one of the str casks or that's anything we you know done to it to kind of revive it if you will right uh, and it's even more than that it's still relatively wet from the sinclair whiskey being in there so uh i that i'm just curious about but that can be something we talk about in four and a half years for a different batch so right. Yeah, it was it was literally so we dumped the Sinclair one day and then the next day we filled barrels. So it was literally like they set for less than 24 hours when we refilled them. So um, they were definitely very wet casks. So. Okay, that's a little I mean, I I don't think I know the Sinclair profile well enough to be able to say, yes, I taste the mm-hmm. profile in there. Um, I enjoy drinking it quite a bit. I just I at this point i've had so many different things that <laughs> profiles elude me and you make it extra difficult of course by you know having all these unique right. tastes in there so this one though i think i might pick out of a lineup um so uh, why don't we jump over to the uh the yeast that you guys are using clearly you're not using the seller's yeast you're not using basic serve ca so. yeah so so the the initial idea with this project was I wanted to create something again in the line of uh, a traditional British Isles aquavitae. And so when I say aquavitae, people think I'm talking about aquavit, but they're not entirely the same thing. So aquavitae was this, this very early sort of proto whiskey that existed before Irish whiskey or before Scottish whiskey. And it was mostly made by um, Gaelic monks. Um, and what they were doing is they were trying to, do a twofold sort of thing. They're trying to make whiskey taste more like brandy because, again, that's what was popular in the British Isles, but they couldn't afford to import. Uh, but the other thing they're doing is they're actually using herbs to make a compounded whiskey. So uh, think along the lines of like a very early gin or something of that nature. So they would take their botanicals and raisins and put those underneath the worm and allow the distillate to fall across that and pull those flavors out of it. Now they're not doing a gin basket. They're not doing a maceration or anything of that nature. They're just trying to get those, as many of those fresh oils as what they can into the distillate. So obviously I can't make a whiskey that way, unfortunately, because then it's going to fall into a distilled spirit specialty. It's going to become a gin or an aquavit or something of that nature. So what's the next best thing that you can do? Um, And let me jump back a little bit in history again here too. So uh, I learned this from Fiona O'Connor very good friend of mine, uh, Irish historian. Um, I'm, I'm working to get him on the podcast. So oh man, you, you gotta have him. He's, he's fucking fantastic. He's phenomenal. He, uh, he, he gets me when I'm down about whiskey, he gets me excited about whiskey again, legitimately with his, his history stuff. So uh, I didn't know. For example, well, sorry, sorry, just him and, uh, Derek brought also. Yes, absolutely. But so, well, I think you introduced me to him at, after the last one and I was just very lax in getting to them. So, right. Uh, maybe we'll we'll push that forward a little bit afterwards. But sorry, Great. I've interrupted. Oh yeah, enough. you're good. You're good. So one of the um, <clears throat> interesting little aspects of this is that you had two sort of different kinds of characters in the British Isle. You had the Gales, which are the Celts, and you had the Gauls, right? And then Fiona pointed this out to me. Um, the way to think of that is us and them. So the Gales are the Celtic people, and then they have you know access to the monasteries, and they're the learned people. And then the Gauls are basically Norse. Um, and the Gauls have this long tradition of making roots or stone beers with different botanicals, stone ale, basically, um, mm. instead of hops. And so they would have looked at the at the at the Gales and said, "Well, we see what you're doing. Why can't we do this with stone beer?" And now you have this whole other sort of herbal thing that comes into whiskey, which we know probably existed. 
there's a, an account of Lefroy using Heather in their mash bills up into the 1920s, long after it should have been done. Uh, and when they were asked why they used Heather in the mash bill, they said, well, we don't really know. It's just always been done that way. Right. Um, so there's obviously and that's those are the places you would expect to find uh, that gall influence is, is sort of on the periphery of society out in the in the Heather, the sticks, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the inspiration behind this is what was whiskey like back then? Can I make it without botanicals? And so the easiest uh, answer to that was not only the peat smoke, but also the wheat was traditional in that area. The oats were traditional in that area. Um, the barley obviously was traditional in that area. The peat smoke was traditional, but then Kvike yeast, which is, or Kvek, I say it wrong a lot of times, uh, which is this old Norwegian or even just Norse in general farmhouse beer yeast. And it's a crazy yeast because it has these unique properties. It's, it's still a, a, a cervasia yeast, but the properties it has are adapted specifically to brewing in a malt house where you might be putting the beer next to a furnace, which is very hot. And mm -hmm. so this yeast is very good at fermenting at very, very high temperatures. So you can take this stuff to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and it'll run off in one or two days, uh, but it Damn. doesn't throw off flavors in the way that a distiller's yeast would or a brandy yeast or anything of that nature. Mm -hmm. What its off flavors are, are the expected flavor profiles, which are very much often fruity um, and then sometimes leaning towards those botanical characteristics. And then running, we found out that running those um, those particular Kvike strains uh, and ours is a mixture of nine or 10 isolated ones that we put back together and we're, they're just kind of co-competing and fighting to figure out which is the strongest. Uh, running those back through the still seems to amplify those in a very unique way to where you can start to get these sort of almost um, uh, uh, nutmeg or uh, even licorice root or um, uh, caraway sort of characteristics out of them that I would like to say that that was 100% done on purpose but I didn't know for sure that that was going to work as extremely as what it did um, mm -hmm. but it, it seemed to have worked out very nicely as far as pulling those characters to the forefront I don't think it probably I don't think the whiskey the whiskey which turned out as bright as what those aquavites would have uh, as far as that botanical characteristic, but there are definitely hints of them there. Uh, and they seem to, to kind of come and go in waves. As you said, every time you taste it, you taste something slightly different. So, so did you, so where did you get that yeast uh, from then? Usually I see, you know, doing a yeast trap more locally, let's say. Yeah. So I was lucky enough. Uh, you can buy several of those uh, Kvike strains and they have been, there's several yeast companies that have sort of isolated them. So Kvike overall is not typically one strain. It would be multiple strains. So you would use it for literally human generation after generation after generation to be passed down. But if you ever lost it, you might go to your neighbor and get a restart of it. Well, what that did is that allowed um, a lot of mixing of these different, very isolated strains. And so mm -hmm. the modern yeast companies have taken those, taken those uh, samples where they might look at it and go, well, there's actually five or six strains here and they've broken them down into individual strains. And so what I did much like when I was doing seed breeding uh, is I bought all of them that I could possibly find. And I put them back together and fucked it all up again uh, because it seems to be my method of, of work for whatever reason. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have a couple of homebrewing friends 
and Europe actually send me some slats with some different isolated devices on them that I also added back in. And so now very much so we have a living strain that we're keeping going at the distillery uh, that also have been keeping going at home for several years now. And I, I couldn't begin to tell you which strains are predominant. I suspect that, you know, from the nine or 10 we started with, there might be three strains left that are sort of living in somewhat harmony at this point. Um, yeah, they would but, have, they would have selected themselves out at a certain point right. which ones were working better yep. yeah and out competed and and really where the kvike started at for us was i had that on hand for a very long time i've been messing with it for years before i ever got the spirits of french lake with home brewing and stuff like that and uh so all of our fermenters at work they're you know closed top stainless steel glycol chilled so several years ago we had a semi hit a power line and it took our chiller out and we had three or four fermenters going at the time. Well, they're 1,200 gallons, so they're going to get hot and the yeast is going to die. It's not going to finish. So we pitched Kvike in those uh, very early on just to basically be able to save them. So mm -hmm. I knew they'd run hot. They'd run off in a day or two. Um, and we didn't lose any alcohol off of it. But we got some very strange profiles of William Dalton that came out of using that particular yeast because it was sort of a last-ditch effort to make sure that we weren't wasting you know, three 1200 gallon fermenters uh, because somebody wrecked a semi into a power line. So, I mean, that's it, that makes total sense. It's just so that's going to run off in a day or two at 110. I mean, what's because 110 is usually like, like you, like you were saying, for a regular, you know, Fleischmann's yeast, you know, right yep. out of the package kind of stuff, 110 is right about where you want to stop, maybe 115. Yep. Um, if you don't want it to run for too long, but it sounds like the Kavite could handle uh, an even hotter environment than that. Like 115. I mean, I'm just throwing out numbers here, but it, that's what it sounds like as I'm visualizing it. And so, so Fleischmann's, for example, like bread yeast, it'll go to 110 without a problem. The only issue is that it throws a lot of very unattractive off flavors, right? Mm -hmm. um, if it runs at 110, the whole fermentation. And that's the, the beautiful thing about Kvike. It'll run the 110 without throwing those off flavors. And again, mm -hmm. the reason for that is it was adapted over time. Um, you know, when they were when they were making their beer, they also had their their sign house or their malt house going, which Caleb up at Sugar Creek also has the only American sign house, which is super cool, uh, mm -hmm. which is a traditional Norse malt house. But when they made their beer, they would literally put it next to these wood furnaces that they're malting and smoking on. And so it got used to running with those high temperatures, right? And finishing mm -hmm. off in 24 hours and maybe it clears in 48 hours and you can bottle it and drink it in a couple of days as opposed to letting it ferment for however long, you know, a week, week and a half, whatever, and then right. letting it clear for so long, et cetera. So um, it just got incredible. And I, I suspect that all yeast varieties have that capability, but you got to select them over time. It's just like saving seeds, right? You got to right. select it over time for what works for you. You know, you almost... Mm -hmm. You're not adapting the beer to its conditions. The yeast is uh, adapting to your bullshit, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, no, it's totally true. Uh, with the, so going back to the uh, the mash bill too. Um, well, first, let me make sure. I want to make sure we've covered everything with the yeast because, like, I, I'm down to get geeky on this. I want to, yeah. I can't quite compete with, uh, and I've referenced this on the, on the podcast before, I can't compete with the episode of Distillers Talk that you did with, Pat Heist, the first one that you did. I haven't listened I to the second one yet. with that episode. Pat just talks circles around me because I just, you know, I could use a microscope and that's really the, the limit of my scientific capability. 
Well, so I listened cool. to that episode in preparation for having him on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And I'm, you know, most of the time I'll do that just to get, to make sure one, I'm not asking stupid questions, to ask new questions, things like that. But, uh, you know, also just to, to um, <clears throat> just get some new ideas and make sure I'm understanding what I'm, what I'm asking about, right. which still not maybe the case, but, you know, understand it better at least. And I just listened to that episode and it's just like, Jesus, fuck. I, I, and understand I worked in a yeast lab for three years in college. It wasn't my major for the second half of that, but we were working on, you know, with negative 80 freezers and uh, basically doing mitochondrial genetics with these yeast strains. So I have at least a passing familiarity and I just listened to that episode and had to stop everything else I was doing to make sure I was understanding what was going on. Yeah. There, there's been a couple of those. He was one of them. Um, let's see. Richard seal from, from uh, Foursquare was another mm-hmm. one. Uh, Steven from Boston apothecary. That was the one. Have you heard that one yet? I don't think I have. No, I got it. I will admit to this up front. That was the most bullshit that's ever come out of my mouth because I that dude was talking circles around me 100%. He just he's that intelligent. I just couldn't. Yeah, different level entirely. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I just want to make sure um, that we've you know delved into that yeast as much as possible because I know I mean I can handle it. I know the audience can handle it. Um, so if there's a, you know anything else on the on the kafike on the uh, how you you said how you how you chose that one in particular um have you i think you said you use that in projects since the starting too right yeah so I, i've yeah. used it off and on um at the house in particular with 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 beer brewing and the, the stone beer project and documentary and uh even wine making way back when um it's something i've been interested in a long time uh one of the interesting things you guys listeners might want to know is the way that I actually propagate that. So I don't use the, uh, I don't use a Donna jug um, or any of that stuff for this, this particular yeast. So the, the way that this yeast was traditionally propagated was on uh, what's called a yeast ring. Um, and even before that, more primitive than a yeast ring is a yeast log. Uh, so this is literally, I have a, a, a peach branch that's about three inches around that I've pulled all the, uh, the outside layer of bark off of. And when I pitch the Kvike, once it gets going, I actually throw this yeast, this branch into the fermentation and it floats on top. And so that yeast gets into all the little pores in that wood. And I take it and I've got it tied off to a piece of a hemp rope. I literally take it to my basement and I tie it up in the rafters and I let it set there until the next time I use it. Um, it is literally set sometimes for a year plus and you can pull it down, throw it into a fermentation after a year plus And within, you know, three or four hours, it's going. So, yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, I know the yeast isn't going to be impressed with us saying it's impressive, but it's, right. Right. it's still damn impressive. Um, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah. you know, um, walking dead level yeast. That's what a, that yeah. Is. It's just like dormant. And to have it be act- that active three to four hours. It's fast, man. Yeah. And, and honestly, that yeast is very strange. The Kavike has, even after all these generations, you could probably bring it back down to different temperatures, but. Uh, we've noticed trying to play with it sometimes at the distillery. If you drop it below 100 degrees, mm-hmm. it does not like it. It will stall. It just it does not want to go at below 100 degrees. It really wants a 100 degree and above temperature to really get going. 
it's a fascinating to think about because I know it's it's not really a dichotomy because it, it makes sense that the Norse would have it near the fire so it would get more activity and it going. But you think of Norse also being very oh, cold. So, right. Yep. So you think a natural yeast there would have to, you know, they would have basically two categories of yeast potentially mm-hmm. to put it broadly, you know, going at the same time, you have the one that was kind of the outside yeast that could handle the cold right. weather and still survive. And then this other variant inside the walls that couldn't and then well you're also dealing with a culture that whose primary product as far as fermentation goes is uh, a stone beer right or mm-hmm. uh, Groot stone beer so using the the stones to actually boil the wort uh, in order to get a higher specific gravity and the the old rule of thumb with every folk culture was when you pitch yeast well when it's blood warm well your version of what you think is blood warm when you fill it and my version of what is blood warm when i fill it two very different things and so that active pitch of that yeast, maybe it's 90 degrees, maybe it's 110, depending on, on, you know, what your sensation is when you put your finger into it, because you're not relying on the thermometer, obviously. So, right. Yeah. I suspect there were a lot of other yeast strains like that throughout time. And we've probably just lost them. You know, it's just another one of those things that just generational knowledge and people get lazy and then commercial yeast becomes a thing or, it doesn't have to be commercial yeast. You think about a, a brewing culture, uh, a bakery moves in down the road. Well, now I don't have to keep my own yeast going because I can go down to the bakery and they've got good yeast every time I need it, right? And so I don't have to right. keep grandpa's yeast going anymore. So Right. And as long as the yeast is serving your purposes, then there's no reason not to use the more economical one. Uh, man, it's fascinating. Yeast is just such a... This is so reductive to say. It's such an interesting topic. As it was there coming was, out of my uh, mouth, I was like, that sounds so dumb, but it is... No, no, you're right. And I'm going to, I'll throw this out there for you and, and also for any listeners that are in the East. There was a book written and I, I'll have to find it in my library um, and I'll look for it. If you'll send me a message tomorrow, I'll look for it and I'll send you a picture of it. Um, I think it was called Psychoactive Beers and it was written in like 1997. This book is, so a lot of people a couple of years ago were talking about a book called The Immortality Key. And then there was a whole thing on Joe Rogan about the immortality key and about psychedelic beers and all this stuff. This guy wrote this book in 97 and it's fantastic. And it's literally a study of the different psychoactive ingredients that can be used in beer. But one of the whole sections is about yeast. And he's one of the earliest American writers I could find that was talking about Kavike yeast. But then he also talks about cultures and how they treated yeast and the way that they, they it, ceremonially, like how do you, how do you induce fermentation? Because obviously they're using containers that have leftover yeast but they don't know that that's what's causing fermentation and so one of the interesting things was they talk about uh the terra humera indians for example uh they had this belief that if you made any noise at all the yeast man wouldn't come and start the fermentation so it was a very silent very reverent sort of moment like you sit around and you wait for it to go and don't be too loud because you might scare the 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 thing that works the beer away Whereas the Norse were very raucous about it. As the louder you celebrate, the bigger the celebration is. And the more noise there is, the more likely what they call the bogeyman, which is where the word bogeyman comes from, would come and start the beer to work. And so I, I find all those things interesting, both on a scientific level and then also from folklore, because you know, it's one of, the, one of the great gifts of whatever whatever anyone's spirituality is. Uh, you know, As long as you believe in some form of, of God, right? Yeast is one of those things that is, is if you don't have the scientific tools to measure it, you don't you don't understand what it is. It seems like a very magical thing that happens. And so it's mm-hmm. a very uh, reverent 
almost ceremonial thing, even though I think in the most scientific of circumstances, if you're if you're Pat Heist pitching dry geese that you know you captured from from wherever he captured it from and, and isolated and got it going, it's a pretty special thing, you know. Yeah, and you got to get a significant volume going before you can can see it, just plain old see it. And like I said, if you know if the scientific tools and you're a pre-scientific society, let's say, uh, you're it's something out of literally out of thin air that's Absolutely. fermenting your beer, that's fermenting your bread. Uh, and the scientific so, aspect of it is very young, still yet what 120 years roughly, basically, yeah. And you can even go back to right after Prohibition. And then one of my favorite things to read, and I've read them a million times, are the old uh, newspaper articles that were, uh, there was a, a series, I think it was in the Lexington Herald Leader. At Lexington Herald Leader, it was um, the Seagram scientists would write something and then Will mm-hmm. McGill would respond to it. And they're just fan. It's just science versus practical distiller. And it's just, it's beautiful reading that stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, just being mindful of times, like I said, I know we can go for a long ass time, um, but I'm already losing my own voice. So I want to make sure to get every aspect of this whiskey, which uh, on the record with you. So the, the mash bill said came from just the historical, what is going on in that area, what people would have had um, notably uh, rye is not one of the components. <laughs> nope. Um, so it goes back to that first conversation we were having, but you got the wheat, the um, let's even let leave the, the peat part of it alone and just say the wheat, the malt, the oats here. So this is what people are growing near is what seems to grow well uh, from what I'm understanding. Uh, we're talking any like really like heirloom or specific varietals here or more general category. Yes more general like commodity stuff um you know, I, I would love to do the heirloom thing it's, it's it, uh, with all of those things it's finding them and finding them in bulk that uh proves very difficult most often so short of corn corn is easy to find nowadays but uh, those other grains are still you know a little hard to get a hold of I, that's what i figured but i you know obviously one Knowing you, I figured if there's going to be a weird varietal of there, if you could throw it in there, you would. But on the other hand, as you said, we're trying to control the variables when you're creating this thing. So in that sense, the commodity probably served you well because you knew what you were dealing with in terms of the grains going in there. Uh, so uh, you are you allowed to share the proportions with us? So honestly, I made a mystery. I don't have them memorized. Uh, I will take a guess, and, and I'm more than happy to share them. If somebody would really like to know them, I'll look them up and I'll find out. Um, but I think it was roughly in the 60% wheat range, and I believe it was about 30 oats and 10 malt. Uh, don't hold me to that. I would have to look that up in order to verify for sure, but I believe that that's roughly where it was at. Um, in the future, there will probably be a sort of as Fiona would call a 30, 30, 30 sort of thing. Um, you know, this idea of, you know, 30% of each individual, 30 plus percent of each individual grain, uh, mm-hmm. which then becomes another TTB nightmare because what the fuck do you label it as? Cause it's not 51% anything, but it, it becomes more right. fun in some ways, I think. Um, so that's, that's probably gonna be something we'll do maybe even this fall. I hope um, that's something I'm considering anyways, cause I think it might, might change it up enough to be, 
just as interesting, if not more interesting than it currently is. Well, I'm, I'm curious. So, all right. So you have the three, let's say the three are at scientifically equal proportions, wheat, right. malt, oats. Um, yeah. I mean, you couldn't call it a wheat whiskey or an oat whiskey or anything like that. Um, you call it a three grain grain whiskey, I guess. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how TPB would make us label that because it would be whiskey from a whatever. I mean, I guess from just a grain mash. If they didn't make us identify what the predominant grain. I mean, can't really make us identify a predominant grain if there's not one. I suppose. So um, yeah. these are those fun, fun philosophical questions of craft distilling where the TPB is like, yeah, we don't really know what the fuck to do with what you're doing, right? So yeah. Talked to a couple of people recently with who are very much involved with like you know ACSA and um, ASMWC, and uh, I actually just had um, Chris Wonger on last week talking from Discus, and he was talking about how they put in a basically an amicus brief for the single malt category, um, but that's pretty easy. It's one hundred percent malt, not you know, not too difficult. But with these, uh, I'm pluralities that's the word i was looking for the plurality grain mash bills uh it's it's gotta be tough because you're right you don't want it to fall into that whiskey specialty nope. that's no. that's just like that's kiss of death yeah like, absolutely nobody knows what to do with it right, right. Uh, i should point out that uh plurality i've never used that word in a conversation but uh for anybody who's playing around with the irish style whiskey what a great mm-hmm. name for whiskey it'd be great fantastic yeah i like it yeah. you got the yeah if you got the uh malted and unmalted mixed in there i mean why not well see i'll tell you i'll tell you too the labeling thing is a nightmare and obviously you talk to some of the american single malt guys and they can tell you how much we're painting that in the asset all that that is and has become for them i think over time and then you got you know ted pro trying to still define absinthe get tkb to actually give a definition of absinthe because it really doesn't doesn't exist as a category right and it should there's enough right. to still there should be a defined absinthe category but it hasn't happened but i think that these conversations and these types of whiskeys this is why i'm so excited about this one um not only because i i don't get to make it every day right it's a very rare thing i get to make this and it's not a bulk product it doesn't have to be a commodity product it can literally be a vanity product to some extent um this is where i think craft distilling is going and this is where i think that in five or 10 years, the conversation will be entirely different than what the conversation has been the past four or five years. Um, it won't be, tell us about your bourbon, why it's different. Mm. Tell us about your rye, why it's different. It'll be, tell us about your single Tell us about this weird thing, this Franken whiskey over here that you got going on, or this weird split brandy, half this, half that thing that's going on. And I think that's the beauty of it is it's finally grown into this thing where people are willing to accept that craft distillers don't have to be mirrors of what the big guys are. And we're finally getting to a point where there's enough quality in the craft whiskey distilling world that it's not necessarily expected that it's going to taste like everything else out there. Um, now, most of these guys that come up or gals that come up, they'll, they'll, they'll all want to claim to some extent. And again, this goes back to ego and patting yourself on the back they all want to proclaim that everything they do is new and different, but it's all old. It's all old. Every bit of it's old. Like nothing here in that bottle is new. This is all old recycled, you know, peasant whiskey ideas from, you know, Wells from Wells and Scotland and Ireland, literally. 
um, that just some dumb Indiana Hoosier stumbled into, oh, let's play around with it and see what happens, right? And it, it's that's the fun of it again. You know, it doesn't yeah. um, defies explanation to some degree, right? There's there's never um, you, you'll never hear a definitive interview about what the whiskey witch is, what the whiskey witch isn't. It it, it just is one of those things that exists. And I was lucky enough to be in a time and a place where I could make it happen. And it turned out good. It could have been really bad, but it turned out really well. Um, I did want to touch on something, though, that you might find interesting, uh, which is the label on that, uh, which short of the the little white outline around that label, which I hate. The idea was for it to have a, a burnt sort of edge look, and uh, that required a, uh, a die cut, which is very expensive. Um, that's my favorite label we've done so far. And the reason for that is... Uh, so the name, I had no name for this. We called it Pochine for a long time. And then, of course, uh, in 2018, Ireland uh, got the, uh, the geographic indicator for Pochine. So we couldn't use it anymore. Right. Um, I had no name for it until a group from North Carolina called the Whiskey Witches came and picked a barrel of it. And they're like, what are we going to call it? I'm like, Whiskey Witch, right? Play off that whole uh, sort of being in the heather, being in the sticks sort of thing. And you guys already have the name and it makes sense. Uh, we also put the dowsing rod on there because it would have been very easy to throw like a rune on there or something of that nature. But I thought, no, the dowsing rod is cool because, you know, is it, is it bullshit or is it the real thing? Right. With, you know, there's a little, there's a little irony in, in having a dowsing rod on that label. And there's also, it's a fun story because not everyone and not um, even in the United States, not every, every region understands what dowsing is or where it came from and, you know, the witching rod and all that stuff and being able to find water, et cetera. So um, I wanted to play off of that sort of ambiguity of all of those kind of things. And I think that that worked out really well. Yeah. It, it's, and you know, as well as anyone that labels have to stand out, especially in the craft uh, section, if you will, of a store, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. and definitely, you know, that label, that was the other thing with it, too, is I, I when we started to design that, and I'm not the label designer, and I won't take any credit for it, but I told them, like, think of, like, go back and look at, you know, if one of the coolest labels I ever saw was uh, this this bottle of Old Granddad, what we believe was Old Granddad, literally just said OGD, the Mike Veach had, right, mm-hmm. uh, Prohibition Day thing that we did, and uh, it was probably a grocer's bottle of OGD, and it literally looked like the grocer took a piece of uh, construction paper and stamped OGD on it and cut it out and it's all you know crooked because the scissors weren't very sharp whatever he was cutting with wasn't very sharp and just pasted it on the bottom right <laughs> and it's a very like lo-fi uh almost indie band sort of thing right I, to me that was the coolest label I ever saw it stuck out because it didn't have a lot going on right and so that was kind of the inspiration behind that like you know let it kind of it doesn't have to have a million things happening. There doesn't have to be a, a huge design aesthetic. It just has to be one of those things like when you see it, like, I've heard about this, but I've never actually seen it before in person. And there it is, mm-hmm. right? It just sort of sticks out and it, it stands on its own. So, absolutely. And, and I really, you know, I'll, I posted one picture about it. I'll definitely post uh, another, you know, when this comes out and when I uh, post the, the tasting notes. I don't even know how the fuck I'm going to do tasting notes on this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just one because it's different each time. So there's there's just so much evolution and different in a good way. Like I haven't had a tasting yet, including tonight, where I don't like it, where there's a flavor in there that I'm just like, ugh, you know, so I want to share with people what I'm getting on this. But at the same time, I'm like, 
until I have a tasting of it where I get something that I've gotten before and it's kind of consistent, I don't know that I'm going to put out a formal tasting note because I'm just like, you got to try this. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'll tell you and anybody else has tried it too, like especially if you're ready to do tasting notes, um, we bottled it at that, that 120, whatever proof it is, on purpose. And the idea behind that was my, my favorite Scottish expressions from Islay in particular are those that are at cast strength or at least at higher strength, especially like the little Freud stuff, because they say specifically on the bottle that it's a, a I don't remember how they word it, basically like an extract of whiskey or whiskey extract, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is adding water to it to your own you know, pleasure. Um, so if you're going to sit down and taste it and figure out tasting notes, I, that's what I would highly suggest is try it and eat and then add some water to it and then add some more water to it and then add some more water to it and find those unique characteristics. Because each of those little each of those little characteristics, um, they're going to be affected by proof tremendously. Mm-hmm. And my favorite way so far to drink that one is literally I'll take a Glen Cairn, I'll fill it up halfway and I drop one rock in it and I'll sip it, you know, as soon as I drop the rock in it. And then just over an hour, let it melt and just sip it as you go. And you start finding all these unique, interesting, it's almost like absinthe or something, right? You get, I was just going to say, it's like an absinthe type thing. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. And which, which could be really fascinating considering I, I had that absinthe note on at least one of the tasters of it. Uh, and I, I usually do not drink with, uh, with, rocks anymore just because i like i kind of like the burn at this point um but uh and 126.7 is is right in my uh my happy place so but that being said you know i will i I think i'm gonna have to i'll have to try with with a little water with a little ice different temperatures um it's just it's so fascinating and uh, i wrote this in another review recently where I forget which one it was, honestly, but it was a whiskey that um, it wasn't like a on a ten point scale. It wasn't like in the eights, nines, tens. It was more in the like high sixes, I think. So it was it was very good. It was something I would definitely buy again. It was very good. But the biggest thing about it was that it was so interesting. Right. You know. Well, that, I, that, I, yeah, yeah. I just kept wanting to go back. Where it makes you want to go back to it. That's that's right. the beauty. Right. Like there's plenty of things to taste that have been some of the best stuff I've ever had, but like, you know, I mean, number one, I know I'm never going to, I'm probably never going to get to try another 2002 George T. Stagg, the first release again. But um, I mean, that's one of my 10 point whiskeys that I've tried. It's just, it was just that good. That being said, it was also very close. It was the stag profile. Right. Yeah. It's sort of the same going to, to, you know, an American steak restaurant with a $200 steak, right? You, you know, you kind of know what you're getting, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's absolutely amazing and delicious versus going to a really high-end ethnic restaurant of whatever variety and trying something you've never had before. And initially, you, we all have that thing where, you know, you grew up with what you grew up with, you know what you know, you're familiar with what you know, that's home. And then when mm-hmm. you're confronted with something that is different than home, uh, you either immediately reject it or you try to reject it, but go, shit, there's something really interesting here, right? There's something, right. you know, and maybe the first time it doesn't strike your fancy, but you find yourself a couple months later going, you know what, we're going back to that restaurant and I'm trying that again because I think I liked it, but I got to prove mm-hmm. to myself that I liked it. 
And that's that's the beauty of whiskey, right? There's you know the the taste profile and the aroma and all those things that bring up all the all the memories associated with them. Uh, but then there's also that sense of discovery and that sense of you're pushing your own boundaries. And then as a distiller, you're pushing the boundaries of what is American whiskey or what is American distilling, right? That's that's. Yeah. I don't get to do as much of that now as I used to, obviously starting up. And uh, so when I get to release something like this. It's, it's very exciting for me. And I there's there's nothing I love more. I'll tell you, this is really cool. I've been tasting people on the on the Whiskey Witch um, ever since I hit those those new oak barrels and those watch shoes oak barrels. And what I'll do is if we have a, a group come through picking a single barrel, uh, there's two things I hit them with at the very end of the, of the pick. It's either the tequila barrel, um, completely matured apple brandy and tequila barrel, or the Whiskey Witch. And it's literally just kind of it's almost it's a little it's equal amounts of being a gracious host and also fuck you <laughs> right just a little here you go here's something that's going to throw you way off now um and you're either going to like it or you're going to hate it and there's not going to be anybody going ah, i don't know right right there, i i don't think you could yeah i don't think you could try this and be ambivalent yes yeah it's 100 yeah I don't know if you'll like it 100% or dislike it 100%, but you're not going to be ambivalent about it. You're not going to just be no gray like area. Said, meh. There's no nope. meh in this. You're either going to hug me or punch me. <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, might might do both. I mean, <laughs> depends on if you, as long as you can replicate it, no punches. But <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know if I can replicate it exactly, but we're going to do. There will be versions of Whiskey Witch for sure. Now, I, I do want to throw this out there to you because I got something else. Uh, I'm going to send you in particular here in a few months. One more little hidden Mortal Kombat characters that were um, that I'm equally excited about is help me, I managed, help me unlock them. Keep coming. Yeah, absolutely. I managed to get a hold of um, a couple of Islay Sherry Butts. I don't know what distillery they came from. They won't tell me. Um, they're not super smoky, but they are smoky. And one of those two cherry butts is full of 140 plus proof apple brandy. So it's a smoked apple brandy profile. Um, With sherry in there as well. Yep. And I also, I may or may not have thrown a little bit of French mocha oak on top of that. Just because why wouldn't you? Right. So. Do you, did they, uh, if they couldn't tell you the distillery, did they tell you like was it PX Oloroso? There's Oloroso. Oloroso. I love my Olorosos. Yep. I, and I like was, the PX too. It's just a little too sweet. It's used for used for scotch for 19 years. I know that. Mm-hmm. And they are these are legit <laughs> sherry butts that would have set in the bodega as well. And you could tell they mm-hmm. set in the bodega because when you look at them, they're no longer exactly round. They've kind right. of settled and they're very like there's the one of them that we have that has a, a blended whiskey and i'm also excited about but it's gonna be a little while longer on it um when i first looked at it i was like that thing is not gonna hold liquid there's no way that it could possibly hold liquid at this point but um mm. so far it hasn't humpty dumpty and fallen apart on me so i mean damn good <laughs> i got i gotta make it out to you guys man i i really do now the travel's opening up again. I mean, the first time we met over this, nothing was happening. But now, you know, I'll be in Kentucky at the end of the month, actually, in, in Lexington. Um, 
if we can work something out, but uh, I'm sure I got to get over there and see what you guys are doing behind the scenes. If you'll let me, of course. Oh, man. I'd come up and spend the day and then hang out the distillery, especially like on a distilling day would be great. Like, uh, uh, so I, I don't work as many weekends as I did because I do so much of this side stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I, I lived at that distillery the first four years and I'm, I'm done with that for the rest of my <laughs> life. Uh, but uh, if you can get up on like a, a Thursday or a Friday or a Monday, mm-hmm. Come spend a whole day, hang out. We'll go through the whole process. You can see everything we do, start to finish, and uh, get the whole experience. So I, I love to, man. It's I really would. I really would. All right, I think I, I want to keep going, but I think I will let you go. All right, brother. Yep. So good with you. Um, I'll I'll post something about the whiskey. I'm not really sure what at this point. I'll figure something out. But you know what? At you just least up with a shocker. You're you're good to go. That's all it takes. Definitely. I I gotta say, I'm glad you're bringing that back. I was a little disappointed when you dropped it for a while. You know, I I got in trouble over Larry Bird meme, is what happened. And uh, oh. you know, I, the further I went into it, the the more I thought, you know what? We're selling bottles to some extent because I do have a big mouth and people pay attention when I talk shit. So the shocker is just now part of who I am and what I do. So if, if you know, Fred, no, is going to be at a, a thing like Jim beam and throw out F bombs in any interview that he can get into there. You can throw a shocker in there once in a while. Right. I think and, it'll be okay. Yeah. You know, what, what picture are you going to remember more? I mean, you know, you can go get your picture with Jimmy Russell and I love Jimmy and I, you know, he's a great distiller, but it's going to be the same picture that everybody has of Jimmy Russell. If you get a picture with me, you're going to get like one clean picture that you can use for Facebook. And then there's the other one where I'm, Right. And that's the one, you know, the one gets yeah. posted to Facebook and the other one is, but have you seen this picture? Right. There's the face, there's the profile picture and the tag picture. Yes. Uh, but I got to say though, and I don't know if I'm going to regret this challenge or not. You could get a picture of Jimmy Russell doing that. <laughs> that would be, I think you'd win the internet for at least a week on that one. Certainly the bourbon. I'll have Jimmy Russell doing the, uh, the Malort McRib challenge. Oh God. Oh no. No, no, no. Right. I can't. Yep. Yep. Can't. Yep. I'm you know, and you know, I'm open to try and pretty much anything at this point. And nope. Can't do it. I, I feel you, brother. I feel you. Give, give me the Jaeger, I'll pay 10 bucks more. I said that shit is a joke, and uh, you know, that's what you get for having friends like I have. They made it into a thing. But the, and this, but they're they had to go and make or at least source drinkable bourbon, and that right. fucked up the whole thing. Oh, yep, stop taking yourself seriously, guys. You're my lord, yeah. You're my lord. That was actually, uh, my, lord. my favorite moment of the past of last year was uh, when I made the Malort McRib joke, and they did, and the guys from my whiskey den did the whole Alan Bishop Day advent calendar. <laughs> And Kevin Rowe is going to McDonald's and he orders a McRib. And he, get, he gets it on film and the Malort team actually shares this thing on their social media. And he gets the, he gets up to the speaker and he orders the McRib and he goes, well, what would you like to drink with that? He goes, do you guys have Malort? And the guy goes, what? He goes, Malort? No? All right, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. It's the most 
if nothing else ever comes good out of my life, that that's that's the moment, and I will always. I, I had a moment right there, right. So I went to McDonald's and requested McRib and Malort. It's a thing. Oh man, fantastic! And God, I hope there's none of those up in the Chicago area that actually do have the Malort behind the counter. Malort's <laughs> anybody? <laughs> there, there might be one. All right, man. I will let you go. We both got our homework. I'll reach out to you about that psychoactive beer uh, book and a couple other things to follow up with. Uh, you tell me about that, Pete, when you find out. Because I, I want to know. I, I want to know. And whatever you, whatever characters you want to help me unlock, I'm always down for it. Have All you right. back on anytime, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it greatly, as always. Absolutely, man. You have a great night. This has been another episode of the Whisker Ring Podcast. If you're still listening, God bless you. Love you. Thank you for, for being with us. Uh, follow us all. Follow Alan at the out. You're still at the Alchemist Cabinet, right? Yep. On Instagram. Alchemist Cat, the Alchemist Cabinet on Instagram. Yep. Um, Spirits of French Lick. If you can find the Whiskey Witch near you or look for it, find a friend who can find it. You got to try this stuff. And uh, that's, I think that's the best endorsement I can give it is you have to try it because it's going to be worth your time. All right, ma'am. Take care. Have a good evening. You too. See you next time. Later, brother. Later, man.